On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Thomas Frederick and Joshua Walk about counseling and integrationism and all sorts of things related to that. So naturally, you cover topics like what is counseling, what are the various models, when did counseling in its modern form become really prevalent, would Reformed Christians of the past even recognize it today, uh, and what should we make of the integrationist debate? Can we use secular sources for Christian counseling, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I am alone today without Brandon Askew, but I'm going to plan to have a lot of fun anyway because we've got two awesome guests with us. So if you don't know anything about us, we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And we try to do that by cultivating and creating sort of an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So the way we think about that is that's a big way of saying we want to be serious thinkers in the in the sense of being rigorous in our thinking. We want to really pursue the best arguments and the best best modes of thinking that we can. But it also means that we do it with a virtuous sort of disposition in kindness and, and charity and and just caring for the other person, caring for other people's arguments enough to not strawman them, to give them the best shake that they can. So that's what we're trying to produce, or I guess produce and promote here at the London Lyceum. We're not perfect, but hopefully uh, if we repeat it enough, it will encourage us to do those sort of things and say, this is a vision that I can catch on to that I want to promote. And me and Brandon, we're both Reformed Baptists, but man, we have all sorts of people on the podcast. I mean, if you listen regularly, you'll know you have the whole gauntlet of people across ranges of denominations. I mean, I think we're probably stick somewhat in the Reformed-ish orbit for the most part, but we've got everybody and every, I mean, you have Episcopalians, you have Roman Catholics, you have everybody coming on the show and, and we try to treat them with respect and honor and we really enjoy it. So Today we have two guys who I think are closer to us, and I'm really looking forward to interviewing them on just the broad topic of counseling. I mean, there's lots of questions that go on with this. I think I was at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, sort of one of the hotbeds for, I guess, what's called biblical counseling. And there is a sense of which, when I was there anyway, biblical counseling is the way, there is no other way, rule with an iron fist. So I know that there is quite a bit of discussion about this. So I'm excited to just sort of chat about it a little bit with two guys. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves. We have Josh Walk and Tom Frederick, and I'll let them talk about where they're, where they're at right now, what they're doing. But I also want to know what made them interested in learning about counseling and deciding to practice counseling and deciding to, I think, in Tom, in your case, teach it at a, at a college as well. So Josh, I'll let you start. And then Tom, you follow up after uh, Josh gives his little think two to three minute spiel on who you are and how you got into it. Sure. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, it's a privilege and an honor to be here on the London Lyceum uh, tonight. Love the show and listen frequently. Um, I'm Josh Walk, uh, founder, executive director, along with my wife uh, here at Baylight Counseling uh, Inc. Uh, we're down here uh, in Tampa Bay in Florida uh, on the other West Coast. Um, but on the East Coast of Florida, it's really confusing. But anyway, um, we uh, Baylight is a uh, Christian nonprofit. We're a donor-supported 501c3. We exist to provide uh, local churches here in Tampa Bay uh, with a viable 
uh, counseling alternative, uh, a place where they can send their folks um, uh, for uh, longer term uh, care, uh, dedicated counseling uh, for um, the range of issues for which people typically will seek out counseling services, depression, anxiety, uh, marriage concerns, parenting concerns, and things of the like. Uh, and um, uh, along with my wife, uh, we've been uh, doing this uh, since uh, May of 2013. And um, although I had heard of biblical counseling um, prior to landing at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2011, it was uh, probably after taking one or two courses um, that I really fell in love with this particular stream of uh, vocational ministry. And um, uh, after spending some time with uh, Sam Williams uh, there at Southeastern, uh, decided to uh, dedicate myself um, to uh, equipping for this particular kind of ministry um, while I was there. And, and um, that kind of set the course for uh, the last uh, nine years of our lives. So uh, I'm Tom Frederick. I'm currently the director of the Master of Science and Counseling Psychology program at California Baptist University. Um, and so basically what that is, is that these are students that are interested in becoming um, uh, equipped to take the MFT license for the state of California. This is a professional degree program. Uh, and so I've been interested in psychology and counseling since I took my first uh, undergrad general psych class back in the day at uh, Geneva College, um, which is part of the Reformed, ba uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church of America. And so I remember long nights in the um, dining hall in my dorm, a very anti-psychology place, uh, but all, so all the students there were like, what are you doing? It's of the devil. Are you worshiping Satan? Did you did you you know bow to Molech yet or something like that? And so uh, I spent a long time kind of uh, forming in that kind of a context. Came to Fuller Seminary. Uh, I graduated from the School of Psychology in Fuller Seminary with a marital family therapy degree. Uh, I'm a licensed therapist in the state of California. And so in, in terms of the one of the other options besides biblical counseling is what we would talk about is an integrative piece. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing that we'll probably get into that integrative uh, dimension as we go through our conversation. Um, I'm not currently practicing, but I've, I'm a licensed therapist. I've got, you know, some experience with addiction, depression, anxiety, couples, uh, adults. And a lot of my clinical experience was in um, uh, treating uh, criminals, violent offenders, uh, people that are arrested for drug abuse, drug-related kinds of things. So, yeah, it's a little bit about cool. me. Super helpful. So let, let's, before we jump into sort of the, the meat of the conversation, give me the basic level definitions of when we think counseling within the Christian sphere. So I, I'm not, I don't really care about the secular stuff. I'm interested in the Christian understanding of counseling. What are the different models and approaches? I know we've mentioned biblical counseling. We've mentioned this integration piece. Don't give me the pros or cons. Just define it for me. So, Tom, start with maybe you just try to give me a taxonomy. And then, Josh, if you feel like he missed anything or you'd nuance anything, you can jump in after that. So, so from a Christian perspective, I think, generally speaking, counseling is uh, teaching, admonition, supporting someone to transform, to grow. And specifically in Christian terms, it, we would want them to become more Christ-like uh, or uh, yeah, more Christ-like. And so um, 
the one of the more popular approaches now that really is trying to develop a Christianized view is what we would consider Christian uh, Christian psychology. Uh, it's very applied that way, and so there would be components of that that would be looking at traditional uh, spiritual disciplines, um, contemplative prayer, meditative Bible reading, uh, that kind of thing. And now that was. Uh, emerging as I was finishing seminary. So we were much more in an integrative piece, which would be looking at how uh, science of psychology and psychotherapy um, fits into more of a biblical model or a theological approach, but I, but um, which would be very different than what the biblical counselors would believe. But so I think those are like the main options. There's, there's the, um, the integrative piece, the biblical piece, and then maybe Christian counseling uh, in the, in the literature. There's a couple of other models there, but those are the, I think the main ones. Cool. What's that you, Josh? Yeah, I, I, uh, I like, um, all of what Tom had to say. Um, I would, uh, probably describe myself as, you know, if we think of biblical counseling specifically as occurring on a spectrum, as most things do, uh, my, I probably would locate myself, um, maybe left of center within biblical counseling, if that means anything. Um, I, I'm not one, I don't think that we have any liberal progressive Christian types within the biblical counseling realm, but we still exist on a spectrum. And so I'm probably more, I'm one who's probably more interested and more open um, to things, uh, influences, helps that that come to us from outside of our unique tribe, if I can use that word. Um, so a lot of the things that Tom is talking about are things that um, are of interest to me and, and um, specifically in the context of how do they make us as biblical counselors, how can they help make us better, uh, more useful to the people that we serve? So, um, yeah, I think that's probably why Tom and I, um, uh, you know, have kind of uh, connected and, and find a lot of common ground, even though we kind of come to the counseling endeavor from some slightly different places in, in our origination. Yeah. So I guess when you're thinking biblical counseling, there's a spectrum. The spectrum relates to how do we think about things outside of the Bible for counseling help? Is that right? Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. So, so I think the the stereotype that I was kind of presented in as an integrationist, and this is this is reflected even in literature of the early two thousands, is that the biblical counseling movement is um, only focused on what the Bible says and does. That's the sole role of kind of human nature, uh, psychotherapy techniques, things you should do. And then ultimately, I think um, some of this stems from probably the the um, ways in which Jay Adams presented himself in conferences in the 70s as being very confrontational. He, he kind of uh, reminds me of the Albert Ellis of the biblical counseling movement. That is very... Um, uh, I was going to use a pejorative word. He was very confrontational, very upfront, um, and basically it always seemed like uh, the client needed to be proselytized, and that was the sole goal of psycho of biblical counseling. But that's changed, um, especially since about 2010, 2008. I noticed a shift in the literature. 
uh, that way. It's really refreshing to me because you know, from an integration perspective, biblical counselors really weren't part of our conversation. Like they were so um, outside of it and they, they, they were solely connected to the, the Bible piece. So they really weren't in, in invited to the conversations that integration folks were having at that, at that point. We, we were the IFB of counseling. <laughs> you can uh, cut I'll, that I'll quote you on too. that, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Before I, I ask you some, some questions more about the specifics on, you know, what you think makes sense, more sense and makes less sense. Give me a little bit of history. I mean, how in the world did we get to this place in modern culture where counseling is where it's at? Um, is there any precursors that we see, whether that's in the Reformation or the medieval church or other places that you say they are practicing counseling in a similar mode or, or way that we're thinking of it today? Because, I mean, when I look and I just imagine it, my intuitions, you can tell me I'm wrong because I don't have any data to say I've read all this stuff to know what happened in the medieval church or the patristic church or whatever. It doesn't seem to me that there's a lot of counseling in the modern sense that was ongoing. Maybe unless it was a pastoral, um, like actual pastoral sort of counseling. But outside of that, it doesn't seem that there were people who function as counselors. So just give me that sort of arc of history. What's happened? How did it change? How did we get here? I'm I'm punting that one to Tom. Oh, okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll use a more specific example. So, um, and if this doesn't work, uh, Jordan, please let me know. And maybe I can come up with a different one. But. Um, initially, what we know about human dysfunction came from a lot of the records the priests used to take during confession. And so we would learn about like catalogs of sins, and some of that in some ways landed in what we would consider the DSM uh, in the 1950s when it started to come out. But, but going back to the, to the Catholic priest piece and the confession part, it was very much uh, a shared worldview, we might say, where what causes people to do bad stuff is sin, right? Either they were sinned against, and then they were sinning outward, right? And so that meant then the confession, yeah, that there it is. Well, that's the newest one, uh, and and they keep threatening of a text revision. So I'm sure it's I'm sure it's on the on the horizon, and so um, so there was that shared worldview, right? Because psycho, psychotherapy has to be connected to what's wrong. What's the nature of problems? And so fast, so we'll jump now into the um, 1800s, and there's the medicalization of the of all kinds of uh, human ailments. Right? We learned about um, uh, bacteria and all this other stuff, and so then people began to understand human problems aren't necessarily a sin issue. There might be biological or neurochemical or some other kinds of maybe you know, empirical or medical exam, uh, reasons for it. And then in the 50s, there was a shared worldview for, for psychotherapy, but that has since gone the way of the wayside. And so we're in this malaise now where, you know, you um, Josh held up that, that book, right? So I go through the list of, sim, of symptoms. I plug in whatever, out pops, you know, major depressive disorder, and I still don't know what to do to fix it. It just tells me what's there. And then some of the literature says I should do CBT. Some says I need to get my client on CBT and some psychotropics, all this stuff. And so it's this really mixed bag. Some of it's medical, some of it's psychotherapy. Some of it is tied to a Christian perspective, like 
cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, right? Thinking, uh, managing one's thoughts. People have been doing that since the beginning of recorded history. And, and you know, prayer is a form of meditation and Buddhist meditation is really popular right now. So there are these hints that we see. But I, I agree. I don't, think, I don't think an ancient pastor would be like, hey, I recognize what you're doing. I, that, there's just no way. Okay, well, let's just take it more specific. So Reformed, you know, let's just take the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Assembly. Would they, in any sense, any of those delegates recognize either the biblical counseling movement or other counseling movements within Christianity, whether that's Christian psychology or the integrationist approach? Would they say, I know it's anachronistic to do that, but just just for fun, say like with their own theological framework in mind, would you think that they would say, yes, this is a healthy approach to helping people um, become more Christ-like and grow towards wholeness? Or would they reject it out and say, no, you just need the ordinary means of grace. Just show up to church on Sunday uh, morning and Sunday evening. And and that's, that's enough. Well, I think that's, that's a tough question, um, at least for me to answer. Um, I wouldn't put myself out there as an authority on the divines. Um, however, I think when we read the body of, of you know, we scan the, that body of literature that, uh, that the Reformation era produced, I think we see enough uh, concern uh, for um, the care of souls uh, in a, in a variety of ways, uh, certainly the pro, in some ways, um, the problems that we face today may have really taken on some different contours from what how they were experiencing them. But there's nothing new under the sun. Um, uh, how they're expressed might might change in some ways. But Martin Bootser was concerned enough about the care of souls that he that he gave a book that title. Um, does it read different than a CBT manual does today? Uh, even one that is um, coming from an integrationist perspective? Sure, maybe it does. But I think if we carefully read them and we carefully read what some of, um, you know, what we're producing uh, today, I think that there are some, some clear lines of, of, of similarity. Um, I don't think that we have to... Uh, uh, close ourselves off um, from from what they had to say, and in fact, I would submit that we'd be doing ourselves a great disservice if we did that. Good, that's helpful. So I want to know more about the integrationist debate now. So talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, what should we make of the debate? I what what's how do we think about how much of these secular sources can we use? What, what what's the role uh, of medicine? I mean, even even as I think now, as as we're recording, I feel like a week ago, I saw a whole bunch of reports or something. I didn't read any of the articles, so that I could. This is hundred percent on me if I'm inaccurate, but I feel like the headlines were saying uh, that the studies were saying that depression is not caused by like chemical imbalances in the brain, which is what seemed to be the prevailing th- theory for. I don't know how many years it's been. And then I see all these people posting this Tom Cruise video that was incredibly fascinating, but also really awkward to watch <laughs> as they went back and forth. But it was super interesting. So just walk me through a little bit in in your own 
context. What do you think about it? How do you understand it? How do you, how do you walk through that? So, so this is a great question, Jordan. So I think for me, like what coming from an, an integrationist perspective and this, and this is where I did not benefit from the biblical counselors is that there were no kind of guidelines or delimiting factors uh, in terms of uh, thinking about epistemology, natural theology, and how these things really help us orient. All right, so so we, we start with the position, all truth is God's truth. I mean, everybody would, especially from a Reformed perspective, would say, absolutely. But then, you know, with the literature that I've been reading, and it's even even now it's going on, there's, um, what that tends to mean is that the theological pieces are fit into, integrated with, maybe assimilated might be a better term, with the psychological components therein, right? And so we're trained, oh, it's a, it's a um, chemical imbalance or some kind of brain dysfunction. And so that means as a counselor, I train, as a, a professor, I teach my students, okay, you've gone through the DSM, you've got this diagnosis, Okay, we understand there are some uh, biological or neurochemical components. You might want to send your your client to a medical doctor for a while, but you need both, right? So the so the research indicates that both are important: talking cure and psychotropics. And then in some cases of really severe depression, uh, psychotherapy actually outperforms. Um, as the the psychotropics, like in people with very severe depression. Um, and so I think what's happened is since we've medicalized psychological problems, human problems, right? We want to throw pills at it. And so a lot of people don't go to their physicians. I mean, I don't know, I don't know if this has happened to you guys, but every time I go into my doctor, I take the, uh, a mental health screen and all the doctor does is make sure I clicked more ones or zeros than ones. And then even even at that, I've been asked, "Oh, do you do you need any Zoloft? Do you do you need anything?" And I'm like, "No, I'm okay." By the way, that's a horrible way to assess somebody's mental health. And they're like, "Oh, okay." And so so we've medicalized it, right? And so we need the talking cure, and we need the the medical part. But specifically, as I understand it, it was one of the theories. Uh, biological theories of depression as some evidence is coming out and suggesting that it doesn't quite work or it doesn't kind of fit the what's happening on in the in the in the brain that way and so um so the epistemological piece is really important and the biblical counseling people really have helped me kind of think through okay what are my commitments epistemologically Right. Do, do, it, does the bible as god's rule of faith uh does that uh, trump What's going on in terms of the psychotherapy, the psychological knowledge that we have? And what is the relationship between that? And how does not, how can natural theology, for example, help me to um, kind of discern and, and uh, uh, um, evaluate these potentially different truth claims that way? So, Josh, how, how, what's your framework for thinking about these things? My framework was... Uh, I think in many ways established early on um, when I began uh, my, tr my training in biblical counseling, um, it was uh, made clear, taught, and it was clear to me in scripture that to be human uh, was to possess a body and a soul. Um, and uh, that the effects of the fall uh, affect, infect, and influence every square inch uh uh, of that of, of our humanity, and so it never 
although there there may have been a progression uh, for me to kind of continue learning what this meant, but um, over the course of time, it, it became clear to me that we wouldn't be surprised that uh, that man would suffer um, in his soul, uh, and he would also suffer in his body, and that includes the brain. Uh, we know more today, uh, I think I can fairly say, we know more about the uh, brain today than at any time in human history. I think that as Christian counselors, therapists, psychologists, whatever words uh, in between, we know more today about the uh, the body-soul intersection than perhaps at any time in human history. But the more we learn, the more aware we become of just how much we don't know. And so it's a very awe-inspiring conversation that is happening both theologically and also on the scientific side of all of this. So I probably early in my biblical counseling career, and maybe this is still true today, um, probably needed a lot more humility in my understanding um, than I had. Um, and so, uh, you know, just trying to embrace uh, some of those things today and, and recognizing that um, uh, we, we, I think, serve our neighbor well when, when we're open to dialogues that, that, or dialogue that has to do with the way in which the body is also influencing how people feel, think, act, speak. Um, and I, I don't think we, we serve them well when, when we are just quick to dismiss that part of the conversation. So it, it seems to me part of the challenge with, with this area is there's so it's counseling, thinking about people's mental health is so close to how just scripture talks in general, like scripture is helping people think, you know, pure thoughts, holy thoughts, these sort of things where th these realms are overlapping to a huge degree where when I tell somebody, you know, the Bible isn't sufficient for you, uh, a sufficient manual for you how to like change your oil on your truck. Everybody's like, well, yeah, duh. But that seems like uh, obviously it's not an instruction manual for me to step one, step two, step three. But it seems that when it comes to counseling, that seems like that's under this realm of Christian theology much, much more. So maybe I want to know both of you answer this a little bit differently, I'd like. So, Tom, tell me, when do you, in your mind, is do you say the limit is for, this is too much integration, we need to return back to thinking a little bit more biblically about some things, and then, Josh, af after that, I want to know for you, when do you say, I need to use some more sources than just a Bible verse? The Bible, I'm not saying the Bible isn't sufficient, the only final rule for, you know, all faith practice, those sort of things. But when it comes to counseling in particular, like when is it that I need to take an extra tool off the shelf to give, to bring this up a notch? So Tom, I'll let you start. Well, well, that's, that's great. This isn't a controversial question at all, Jordan. And I won't get into any trouble with my answer at all. So don't, don't, this is great. So Jordan is questioning <laughs> the sufficiency of scripture. 
Oh, uh, I, I didn't hear that question at all. Just, but yeah, okay. <laughs> no, he's not. I was uh, just kidding, people. Just kidding. So, I, I think um, let me answer this question, Jordan, in a couple of ways. First off, there are clear uh, legal parameters that, I, because I'm a licensed therapist in the state of California, or any therapist would be a licensed therapist would be under these parameters. I can't proselytize. So if a person came in and even in, as part of this counseling session, like they would be like, you know, I really need Jesus. And I might agree completely with that. I would refer them out to a couple of trusted pastors or churches um, because that would be a limit, right? The, the law is preventing me from doing something like that. Now, um, there are a couple other areas in there. So in 2008, when um, California went for the um, gay marriage, the homosexual marriage, that brought up a lot of challenges, especially for those of us that are Christian and might hold to a traditional perspective on marriage. So then what do you, how do you treat couples, uh, especially homosexual couples, that kind of a thing? And then, of course, now we're, we're into um, even more uh, initials after the LGBT thing with some signs and stuff in there as well. And so then the question becomes, how do we, how do we, be salt and light in a situation like that when there are so many political and professional and mental health ramifications. And it's a really difficult space to be in um, that way. And so one of the things that I, tr I do regularly is um, integration for me is about the person of the therapist. So my identity as a Christian, as a Bible-believing uh, white male here in the United States, that's who I am in the counseling session. Now, I share... More of that with some folks, maybe by praying with them, maybe by opening the Bible and sharing some scriptures and talking about more theologically theme, explicit theological themes. But myself, my identity, who I am but through the power of Christ in that moment shares God's life with them. And so I'm hoping that I'm perturbing them to whatever situation they're in to be more aligned with Christ and his word as we see it in the Bible. Um, and so, so that's kind of how I approach this and conceptualize this. And I, I'm so far, I'm not, um, I don't perceive myself to be in violation of my theological or my professional ethics in the way that I'm practicing at this moment. Now that might change in the future. I don't know what the future is going to hold, but right now uh, that's kind of where I'm, where I'm at in this space. So a very basic explanation of how we at Baylight, my wife and I, will approach this uh, question that you've posed. Whenever we're meeting um, with someone for counseling, uh, one of the things that we're seeking to do is we, as we gather data, as we establish a rapport with them, you know, establish a, a, a healthy relationship with them, is um, I'm I'm looking for. Uh, continuity between what they're describing and what they're experiencing. Um, if, if someone comes in and uh, through the process of our conversation, there seems to be a gap between uh, their, ex their experience, what the, the, the symptoms, if you will, that they're experiencing and the circumstances of their life uh, that might give rise or give, um, um, uh, raise concern that perhaps this isn't a circumstantial or a circumstantially driven uh, 
uh, concern. Uh, perhaps um, there's a biological component uh, to the uh, to what they're experiencing, whether it's a biological issue that's that's at the at the root of the problem. Um, I'm willing to perfectly open to that possibility, and I'm also open to the possibility that. Uh, their circumstantially driven difficulty has produced the fruit of biological difficulties. I'm not a medical doctor and I don't play one on TV. So I'm very happy uh, to refer that person uh, to their medical doctor. I'm very happy to work with their medical team and and we do um, regularly here at Baylight. Uh, we uh, are happy to, to, to work with, um, you know, anybody's medical doctor in the, in the course of, of their care. We see that not as, not as being at odds with, with biblical counseling, but actually being in harmony with scripture, because I want the person in front of me to be well in their mind and I want them to be well in their body. And so I'm, uh, very happy, um, to, refer people out for medical care, um, or at least a checkup anytime there's any reason to think that, that, that could be at issue. That's good. That's helpful. So we've talked a little bit about ideas. I want to get a slightly more practical. So we have a lot of pastors who listen to the podcast and I think Tom, you mentioned just those three areas of addiction, depression, and anxiety. I mean, how, how should pastors approach those specific things? Because to me, it seems like these are becoming more and more and more common. All the time, I'm seeing more people who are addicted to more stuff, who are more depressed, who are more anxious. It's just like, it, it feels like everybody is more anxious, more depressed. So what would you encourage pastors to begin doing or to begin thinking about? Maybe it's Here's an inventory you should just have in your back pocket when you're talking to somebody just off off the cuff, or maybe there are more probing questions or just ways that you could say these are some commonalities between people who are experiencing these things that have served to, to benefit them. Um, just give me your best advice. Uh, Tom, you can start. Sure. So I think for me, especially in terms of the addiction piece, like if I was uh, a pastor and I had um, – I would have those resources handy. So I would have the like national um, um, 12-step programs, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, CODA. I would have those numbers available. So if a parishioner or a congregant came in and they're like, you know, pastor, it's really hard for me to tell you that I've been, you know, I go, you know, I drink, you know, a six pack a night. And then I, I wash that down with, you know, a, a quart of uh, Jim Beam or something or whatever. And so they're like, okay, well, that's a problem. It sounds like you've got a problem. And then maybe if the pastor, if it's a small church, the pastor might even want to offer going with the person to those initial meetings. Now, this is something important. Um, so there are different levels of 12-step meetings. Some are very educational, kind of like the ones that you see in the movie. Uh, but then there are much more, they're much more intimate settings where you're actually working through the, the steps and you get a sponsor. Now that's the level where the pastor would want to kind of disinvest himself from to, because the, the, the person at that point is in really good care for the most part. Uh, and then, you know, I would, as a pastor, after I had the client or the, the congregant rather, I'm sorry, um, in that position, 
I'd keep checking in with them. So how's it going? Because what we know is that level of addiction has horrible ramifications for the marriage, for the kids, uh, jobs. I mean, just usually usually people with addiction, by the time they come for help, their lives are usually in a mess. And so there's a lot of other supports that the pastor can do. And the pastor can play a really important role in the recovery for that part, but then also in developing wellness later on, uh, supporting the wife, supporting the kids, making sure everybody's safe. You know, do you, if it's couples counseling, you know, you might want to ask the pastor might want to separately ask the spouse. So what do you do when he's drunk and he wants to take the kids to Dairy Queen? How do you manage that? And that, what do you need to do there? And what's a safety plan? Have you ever thought about, you know, doing what you need to do so you can be safe, so that you and the kids can be safe? And then, you know, we'll deal with the ramifications when the person's um, not recovered but sober. Right? You really can't do anything when someone's under the influence that way. So those would be some of my suggestions. Um, I would recommend not coming in heavy-handed and, and all, you know, you know the. Paul said da, 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 or the, uh, that kind of thing, right? No, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I'd want to be supportive, make sure people are safe, and then work toward the recovery piece. Yeah, I agree um, uh, with uh, what Tom shared. Um, it's been a historic uh, uh, plan for us here at Baylight to, to recognize that when someone comes in, um, as happens with uh, an active um, moderate to acute addiction issue, uh, chemical, I think we're talking about chemical addiction type stuff here. Um, it's, it's pretty much a standard, uh, affair for us, uh, to get them connected, uh, as best we can, uh, to some kind of, um, and what I'll call an inpatient, uh, treatment scenario. Um, you know, my, my background, uh, between my my background in law enforcement, uh, you know, over the course of 17 years and, and then, you know, our nine years here at Baylight uh, has really impressed upon me that un- until you, you get a person to a place of, of physical, uh, clear physical sobriety, the work that we would be most concerned about, about influencing their mind, influencing their heart, is is just simply not going to get off the ground, um, or at least it's going to be significantly hampered. Um, I'd I'd rather get someone into a condition of of physical sobriety, uh, um, and uh, you know whether that's you know whether that turns out to be twenty days, thirty days, ninety days, whatever it takes. If they can if they can do it, if they have the resources, that sets them up uh, much better to receive. Uh, you know, uh, our counseling on the backside of that, uh, because I'm, I'm just always very concerned about someone with an active, uh, or, you know, maybe we might say an acute, uh, ongoing addictive, addictive issue. We can have a great counseling session, but as soon as they walk out my door, all bets are off. And, and I'm just, uh, very concerned uh, to not perpetuate that problem. So one last thing I really want to get your feedback on. How important is it for pastors and others who are interested in helping people along with these sort of things to have a robust anthropology? And I'm assuming both of you are going to say it's very important. You can give me the pitch for it. And then if it is, 
give me the resource that you would say, you got to read this if you want to have the most help in thinking through these things. Tom, you can start. All right. So, um, absolutely. So that's, uh, theological anthropology is why I went to seminary for my training because it's all about human nature, either a completely secular view or a completely sacred, well, not completely sacred, but a sacred view uh, that way. And so um, the two resources I would recommend, um, I'm just going to throw it out there, and then if, if people send me hate mail, that's okay. Um, Owen Strawn, uh, Australian, I think I, I got his name right, um, he wrote a book called uh, Reenchanting Humanity in 2019. And that's one of the most thorough uh, anthropolo- theological anthropologies that I've read that covers a lot of bases that really aren't talked about. So there's um, the usual stuff, male and female stuff, but then he gets into work and some other components that um, are becoming more popular in theological circles. I recommend that. Um, and then, um, oh my gosh, the, the, the author's name just left me, but it's called The Logic of the Body. And it was published about the same time, which it's also a great book um, because what you get in what do you get in integration circles is what's known as non-reductionistic physicalism, which basically means that there all the psychological, spiritual, mental functions are some sort of artifact of biological processes that you really can't differentiate a soul from the brain. Uh, and there are some problems with that from a classical Christian perspective and among other perspectives. And the logic of the body speaks to that a little bit, or not a little bit, quite a bit rather. And that's a gr- those are two recommendations I would make for people interested in theological anthropology. And that's Matthew Lapine for those of you guys who are listening. That's right. So we Thank actually you. did an re- interview with him very long time ago. So I will link to that in the show notes so that you can go listen to him and be convinced yeah. to go buy his book. All right, Josh, yeah, please give me buy a pitch that and your yeah, resources. I'd, 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 I'd like to thank Tom for bringing up uh, Dr. Lapine's book because I owe Jordan a book review um, from like <laughs> forever ago. Uh, so thanks for you know bringing that up, Tom. Uh, we, 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 live to, we live to serve, Josh. We live to serve. <laughs> um, okay, so it, this is probably some kind of a reformed Sunday school answer, but I just love every. I, I love reading Calvin on man. Um, I, I, the Institutes, in particular, um, were very formative for me, and I can just sit down and read them at any time and just feel like I, I've benefited when I walk away. Um, can, in a more contemporary uh, sense, um, uh, two uh, two works um, that I think are helpful and uh, good reads. Um, the very accessible uh, uh, to to uh, a broad readership, I would say, uh, 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 Jeremy Pierre's book, "The Dynamic Heart in Daily Life." Um, uh, Doctor Pierre is at Southern Seminary, um, and then uh, I think I'm going to get this right. Uh, With all your heart, um, by uh, Doctor Craig Troxel at um, Westminster Seminary, Cal- California. Um, uh, two two good contemporary books that I have benefited from uh, very much. Awesome. Man, you guys have been spot on in this conversation. No one even got angry with each other. It's amazing. So, Tom, you're making fun of this is the, the heated topic here. And, Josh, we didn't even get the, the fun Twitter Twitter comments. 
what's going on there. <laughs> so everybody, you guys are listening. You should follow both these guys uh, on Twitter. Josh, I mean, half the every other week he's off Twitter, but if he's on Twitter, go find him, follow him. It's a it's uh, a love hate relationship that that's me and Twitter have. But the, one of the positive things is it brought us together. I met Josh over Twitter, and there's no way I'd ever meet him. And so that's good. But then Twitter's a cesspool at the same time. You know, so. it's, that, I mean, that's listen, pretty much- it, it's a big deal. I mean, I am supposed to be at complete odds with Tom. He is a doctor of psychology. I mean, I, I'm supposed to be proselytizing him this whole show. That's true. Um, you know, and... I mean, I'm, he's supposed to see me as like a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal, um, but but we're brothers and we love each right. other, and That's I've right. benefited um, right. from from his writing specifically. Oh, well, thanks. That's, thanks. That's awesome. And yeah, the whole Twitter thing. I mean, for me, I've met so many cool people and found so many good resources. You just have to be very self-controlled and very judicious in what comes into your feed for it to be a successful experience in any sense. And even then, I'm not you're like, Jordan. Uh, I need you to mentor me on Twitter. Uh, I don't. I don't think I could be successful in that. No. So, and and Jordan, if I may, if if it's if and you can edit this out. I, it depends. Go on for it, man. But if uh, pastors want to want to reach out to me, my DMs are usually open. Uh, and so if they have questions or if they need resources or if we want to make fun of Josh, you know, and, and that we can do all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I don't mind because, like, the resource thing, I think, is one of the – one of my passions is, is um, supporting pastors. And I don't – seminary doesn't have enough time to deal uh, intently with pastoral counseling unless you do kind of what Josh did and really focus on biblical counseling or some kind of professional pastoral counseling credential, which – not a lot of people do. Yeah, no, that that's wise words and also very generous of you to offer that. So I think even in my own MDiv, I don't think counseling of any sort was required, so I didn't have to take anything related to that. Um, so I think that's probably a similar uh, background for a lot of guys who have had any training uh, that they, they just aren't prepared for the in-depth challenges that can present themselves in certain scenarios and cases. So... If, if that's you and you want resources, then I guess you can go DM Tom. So sorry for if you got 100 DMs tomorrow whenever this drops and you're listening. But uh, you can go ask him for some resources, and he's offered to help. So that's awesome. So thank you guys for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, as always, you guys know this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.